Hello and welcome. You're listening to the limited series podcast from the Texas Public Policy Foundation, The Road to Recovery. I'm your host, Brian Phillips, Chief Communications Officer here at TPPF. And over several episodes, we're going to be discussing the challenges that Americans are facing from this coronavirus epidemic. Things like its effect on our health care, on our economy, and really just on our daily lives as we go about. But most importantly, we want to discuss the path forward to mitigate the damage that's been done and talk about ideas and solutions for how we can really get our country back on track. TPPF has published the Recovery Agenda. It's a set of proposals that federal, state, and local governments should follow in order to protect the public health and safety, our economy, our families, and our students. And you can find that plan and those proposals and those solutions at texaspolicy.com. So that brings me to my guest today. Kevin Roberts is the executive director here at the foundation. He has 20 years of experience as a teacher, a professor, a headmaster, a college president. He's been involved in a number of education reforms around the country. He's a constitutional scholar, he's a historian, and he's worked on just about every major public policy initiative in Texas these last two sessions, including our historic property tax reform last year. You can find him on Twitter at Kevin Roberts TX. Thank you for being here, Kevin. Brian Phillips, it's great to see you live and in person. <laughs> um, you know, one of the, in doing that bio, one of the things I did not call you was an economist, and yet here we are talking about the economy. Is that because you know that I went to Louisiana public schools, <laughs> and therefore I'm unqualified to comment? It's because, it's a good point, it's because uh, as we do survey research, as we look at you know focus groups and polling and those kinds of things, the way we interpret people's attitudes towards the economy is really about people's confidence in the country. Um, how something like you know this ec- epidemic could affect people's confidence. Uh, confidence in our institutions, in our public officials, and frankly, even in the overall sense of hope for the future. And so that's why I want to you know, talk with you about here today is is just that that idea of um, you know the future of the country and people's confidence and how it's been shook, shook uh, as a result of this epidemic. Um, so perhaps the most a critical debate that's being ha- that's happening right now is how much is too much. There's this wild spectrum, right? We're on one side, it's we can't underestimate the public health challenge that we face. Uh, but on the other side, it's we can't overreact to the point to where we are doing uh, irreparable damage to our economy, to our society, to our institutions. And I would love to do a diagram of the 10 personalities along you know, that spectrum. Where would you, where would you find yourself uh, in that spectrum? Solidly on one side of the spectrum, which is that this is a dramatic overreaction which is not to say that obviously there are people who've died from this. There are people who right now are suffering from what for them is a health crisis. But I think we can acknowledge that while also acknowledging the substance of how you frame the question, which is that if you and I go walk around the sidewalks of Austin or I go walk around the sidewalks of where I live in a, in a neighboring county, I don't need to talk to an economist and no disrespect to them to know what Americans are feeling. And what they're feeling right now, regardless of whether they describe themselves as liberal or conservative, is that this is too much. Yes, there is a health problem. But since when did governments stop respecting our ability as Americans to make prudent decisions for ourselves and our family? And as you know, probably better than anyone here at TPPF, Brian, the last couple of days, I've been telling everyone that we're about a week out as Americans from all of us just saying to hell with it. 
let us get back to work. Let us go lead our lives. Let us go to our churches in person and let us decide what the appropriate measures are. You know, when we talk about you know, normal policies at the state or the, the federal level, um, you know, people have their ideas and their opinions about what's right or wrong. But when you have a crisis, whether it's a weather, you know, a hurricane or something like a, a medical crisis like this, generally we want to defer. We want to uh, uh, to allow our public officials or whether the health officials or government, political officials, we want to defer and say, well, these people are in, are in leadership positions for a reason. We'll trust them. Um, and so and for at least for so long, do you think that that because of the, the protracted nature of this, is it affecting our trust in those institutions uh, at a deeper level? Or are we just getting antsy because we're wanting to, you know, we're, we're, we're uh, tired of being home? Well, they're probably both. I, I think up to this point, most Americans would say they're grateful for the measures that all of our elected leaders have taken. And there's, to your point about trusting them and the institutions they lead, I think there's still a pretty high level of trust there because we do recognize something is going on here. There's some substance of a crisis here. But because we are a free people, including freedom to be mobile, that is to go wherever we would like to go within reason, the longer you ask a free people to literally stay put, the harder it is for them to do that. And in the absence of data that shows we're taking our life into danger when we step outside of our homes or we go to the grocery store, we're going to get more and more antsy. And there's going to reach an inflection point. As I said, I think we're just within days of this where the people say, in spite of our gratitude for our leaders and what they've done, in spite of the trust we have in our institutions, enough is enough. And you mentioned, you just mentioned, um, you know, in absence of data. And that's one of the things, of course, we're a think tank and we're a research organization. And, and I think that's kind of the things we've been scratching our head at is where's the data? Where is where is the where are the numbers or where are the, the trend patterns and things that are telling us that that these measures are necessary? Um, and, and I, you know, I say we're scratching our heads. Where, how do you see it? Have you are you are you convinced that it's that it's not going to happen, or are we still, you know, taking a look at it? Where are you on kind of before I, that? I, I put it, I frame it in two ways. I frame it as a historian, not a historian of, of pandemics, but I'm knowledgeable about those. And most importantly, as a husband and dad and privileged to be a leader of, a, of a, an organization, TPPF, that's a lot like a family. In the first case, as a historian, this just pales in comparison up to this point of every other example in history I can think of that's a health crisis. Will this reach that level of historical significance? Perhaps. But the point is, it hasn't yet. And we've already taken unprecedented measures by our government leaders to, to address this. As a husband and a dad, of course, I want to be prudent in what I do and what my family does. And I know that all of us here at TPPF do. But ultimately, I think that we want to go about our lives as normally as possible. If that means that for a few weeks we need to be able to go to public places wearing masks, that's great. Better that we make that decision than some mayor of some city telling us that. But I think what's really troubling people is that when you have county judges, as the county judge of Harris County did last night, say that she's going to implement a stay-at-home order, not even publish the text of that, and do so with a dramatic, in quotation marks, dramatic increase of four cases from the previous day in one of the largest cities in the world. That, for me, puts the complaint in microcosm that we're doing too much based on too little data. And we've seen um, example after example, and I've seen multiple stories 
uh, highlighting how people are coping and people are dealing with this. And they're, it's, it's kind of funny. Part of it is people are almost nostalgic for a time when, you know, communities, neighbors knew each other and kids were playing in the streets instead of staring at their phones. Um, so there's almost been this sort of like return to, to a simpler time almost because we, you know, we don't have the, uh, um, uh, we're not running around constantly or at least, you know, spending all this time at work or wherever. Um, but, but it's, but it's been interesting, uh, to, to note some of those stories and, and, uh, to show that people are lending a hand, people are doing charitable works without government mandates. Have you seen a little bit of that in your, your experience a little bit of that? I, I sure have both locally where we live right here in Austin. We, of course, we like to pick on Austin because of its politics, but I remind people Austin really is the best capital city in the best state and the best country in the history of the world. It's a great place to be. So even here in Austin, you see businesses, business owners, these are individual people deciding that they're going to forego profit and they're going to make sure that they're donating whatever excess food they have to local food banks. And this is, of course, preemptive because we don't even yet know the full ramifications of the recession and unemployment. We see stories in every city, every county, every state of the generosity of people, whether it's financial generosity or something that's very simple that I've been encouraging people around Texas to do, which is to check on that neighbor, especially if they're elderly, that maybe you haven't gotten to know, maybe you haven't talked to in several months, and ask them what you can do to help them. Not, can I help you? Because we're all going to, as Americans, have a little too much pride to say yes, but what can I do to help you? And I think what that does is get us back to the best part of those, those times about which we're nostalgic, which is that before we went to our screens, before we decided what, how we we're going to entertain ourselves, we knew one another. And if there is a silver lining to this crisis, and I happen to, as an optimist, to believe there will be many, many silver linings, it will be that our time at home, which hopefully is limited, will remind each of us that the most important things in our lives are the people around us, and not necessarily the people with whom we have political disagreements, because those are pretty immaterial when it comes to real, a real crisis. I think it's a real opportunity for us to make America great again. Now, despite both of us having uh, not having economics PhDs, um, I do want to get a little bit to the economic policies because, um, and I think over the last week, there's really been a return to focus on how we can get uh, the people back to work, how we can get businesses, uh, maybe normal is not the right word, but at least getting to a point where they're breaking even and maybe even getting in the black. Um, and we have, uh, again, we have the, the recovery agenda. We have a set of proposals that, that we think are going are gonna to move towards that. But but just, just a more of an approach to it. What is the right approach? Uh, DC's approach looks like they're just going to spend as much as they can possibly spend, a trillion here, two trillion tomorrow, maybe three trillion by the end of the week, who knows. Um, but what's the right approach in terms of getting our economy moving again, getting you know access, to, getting employers and employees access to the resources they need and getting jobs flowing back again? Yeah, and in terms of substance, that's really the question. I think the best way to understand the DC approach is that it's it's really the Christmas tree approach, and, and no offense to Christmas trees, but the the, the idea is that where we have this bill, part of which may be necessary. I think most of it's probably premature. We just don't know the the full economic impact yet. But we're going to put onto that bill all these ornaments on this Christmas tree to get our entire wish list such that wind and, and solar tax credits are more important than the mom who lost her job because she had a really profitable job as a waitress here at Roaring Fork Restaurant down the street from us, right? That it's that, per, that person, those kinds of people that policy need to be focused on. 
Therefore, it's much easier, it's much better for that policy to come from the states, in part because our state here in Texas can't run a deficit. It's got to balance its budget. And so framed by that newfound fiscal discipline out of necessity, I think our state legislature has an opportunity, which is to reprioritize all of the programs it's been able to fund because of the prosperity we've had. It's one of the interesting things about working in policy is that eras of prosperity, which come from conservative principles, end up leading to a lack of conservative fiscal discipline. And so even here in Texas, for listeners who are who think that Texas is policy nirvana, it's not quite. Even in Texas, we spend too much money. And it's an opportunity, this is the key, for where we decide to spend money through our public resources to help those people who, through no fault of their own, have been harmed both by this health crisis, but also by the government's response. One of the dynamics I'm really interested interested to see how it plays out is is this you know the the state and federal government have been rolling back regulations they've been rolling back rules all in the name of public health and safety all in the name of uh, helping workers or trying to help uh, employers uh, bridge the gap um, it's going to be really interesting when the crisis is over or when we you know start to to get back on our feet what happens to those regulations because if the idea is that they were hindering individuals from succeeding. Why would we be putting them back in place? That's an excellent question. It's sort of like when you've got your, you know, your individual budget before you're married or your family budget once you have a family and maybe one of the spouses gets unemployed or there's a reduction in pay, you decide you're going to cut the non-essentials and then you realize, oh, I can live just fine without those non-essentials. Well, government's got a totally different attitude. You got all these regulations that inhibit our prosperity economic prosperity, social prosperity, we get rid of them instantaneously in the middle of a crisis, but they come back automatically because they've not been eliminated, they've been suspended. The fact that they can only be suspended actually is kind of good, and I don't want to get too geeky as a historian here. We don't want any executive to have the power to completely undo legislative action. The key is that when the legislature convenes, they eliminate all those regulations that were suspended. That, you know, that's it's it's right. I mean, in an emergency, if they have to shift traffic in one direction, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. That's something that we want people to have. But if the but if the justification is this was causing this was making it more difficult for employers to hire people, then wh- why was it there in the first place? It's just going to be it's going to be really um, interesting going forward to see how they handle all that. Um, one question, and this is a very you know this is much bigger picture um, that I want to get your thoughts on is uh, just about the American people and you know taking your experience. As as a historian and, and a professor on this, what is it really about the American experience, it's our values or our history of dealing with big challenges that makes you hopeful that, that this is just purely temporary and that we're all really going to get through this? We are a people with an irrepressible spirit. And it doesn't matter where our ancestors were from, which continent they were from. It doesn't matter the color of our skin, the religion we practice, our native language. When we wake up each day in America, however long we've been privileged to be here, we're signing on sort of implicitly to a creed that requires us not merely to have this frontier spirit, even if we live in a big city, but while we're doing so to lift up our brothers and sisters who are with us, our neighbors, not just our family members. And even though there are many complaints a few weeks into this crisis that we might make, I think especially about local governments, 
There is no government, no government, there never can be a government that can overcome the power of the American people when we decide this is how we're going to respond. We're going to live our lives. We're going back to work. I don't care, Mr. Mayor, what you're telling us to do. Get the hell out of my way and let me be an American. That's a really good message for our listeners. Uh, Kevin, thank you so much for being here and, and for sharing your thoughts on this. Uh, this. This concludes our time for this episode. Again, I'm Brian Phillips for the Texas Public Policy Foundation's limited podcast series, The Road to Recovery. For access to this full series, you can find us on iTunes. And for more information on this and all the critical issues facing you and your family, our schools, our state, and our nation, please go to texaspolicy.com. Thank you for listening.